You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For October 28, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. A decade ago, Carbon Tracker, a London-based think tank focused on energy and climate, started warning the investment community about the risk of stranded assets. That is, the risk that the world would soon have to take action on climate change, which would render much of the world's fossil fuel reserves unproducible and unburnable. Were that to happen, the value of the oil, gas, and coal producers would plummet, and that would be an unacceptable risk for major funds like pension funds, which have long had investments in the fossil fuel sector. Companies like ExxonMobil had been considered blue-chip investments for decades. Indeed, when Carbon Tracker issued its first report in 2011, ExxonMobil was the world's largest company by market capitalization. Convincing asset managers that they should reduce their exposure to the fossil fuel sector out of fiduciary duty was a tough sell. But then the oil and gas sector lost its shine. For the past decade, it has been the worst performing sector in the world. Now banks, asset managers, and even oil operators have joined the ranks of those worrying aloud about the increasing risk of stranded assets. ExxonMobil has just been booted from the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and Carbon Tracker's thesis has continued to play out just as they warned. Indeed, as we'll hear later in the news segment of this show, investors in shale companies in particular have lost a great deal of money over the past decade. And now, the warnings about stranded assets are converging with calls for companies and investors to apply environmental, social, and governance, or ESG, filters to their activities, including tightening policies around carbon emissions. Some major fund managers are publicly announcing voluntary divestment from carbon-heavy assets in order to preserve their credibility, their returns, and their public trust. The fossil fuel sector is on the outs, just as Carbon Tracker warned it would be, while the sectors focused on energy transition and climate solutions, such as wind and solar companies, grid technology companies, companies in the electric vehicle sector, and so on, are turning in superior returns. So I'm very pleased to have the founder of Carbon Tracker, Mark Campanale, join us today to talk about what investors have learned from the experience of the past decade, what they still need to do going forward, and some of the more interesting efforts that are underway to encourage divestment from carbon and to reorient capital toward energy transition solutions. He's a very interesting guy with 25 years experience in sustainable financial markets, working for major institutional asset management companies. He was the co-founder of some of the first responsible investment funds, and he is a highly respected advisor to numerous organizations, so he has a uniquely well-informed view of how the investment landscape is being reshaped to recognize the challenge of climate change. 
Then in the news segment, we'll note a change in the sentiment at the European Central Bank around investing in fossil fuel companies, as well as a New Jersey bill that calls for the state pension fund to divest from fossil fuels. We'll review some of the top-line findings from the IEA's new World Energy Outlook. We'll note a new report estimating the divestment that the oil majors may have to make in order to stay competitive. And we'll redux several new analyses showing just how much money investors in shale plays in the U.S. have lost over the past decade. And now, our conversation with Mark Campanale, recorded September 16th, 2020. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Mark, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you very much, Chris. You founded Carbon Tracker Initiative in 2011, and that really put the idea of fossil fuel stranded assets into the public dialogue, I think, about the future of the fossil fuel industry. I remember when I first came across your work around 2013 or so, I thought it was really very savvy because unlike the messages out of the peak oil and climate change communities at the time, which is really kind of where it was at, there wasn't a lot of discussion back then about energy transition per se. Those messages were aimed at government policy policymakers and trying to influence popular opinion, but your stranded assets message was squarely aimed at the investment community. So why don't we start there? Why did you conceive of this unburnable carbon concept and target asset managers? Yeah, well, thank you, Chris. You have to go back to where we were then to understand why we decided to focus. And the other founder was my good friend, Nick Robbins, and he was working with him at Henderson. We followed a lot of the science and we followed and saw a lot of what the campaigners were doing. And we were working in the investment community and there were all kinds of disclosure initiatives around climate even then and investor initiatives. But it didn't seem to stop those very same investors from buying all of the coal IPOs that we're seeing at the time and oil and gas. And there seemed to be a disconnect between what the science was telling us what to do and the direction of policy and what the investment community was doing in reality. And what the investment community was doing was continuing to pour billions and hundreds of billions into expanding the fossil fuel economy. So that merited further investigation. And if you look at the very first report called Unburnable Carbon, Are the Financial Markets Carrying a Carbon Bubble?, It's in fact targeted at financial regulators. You can actually read it as a letter to financial regulators, sort of saying, look, if the companies can't burn the fossil fuels that they're already developing, why do listing rules, admissions procedures to stock exchanges, disclosure requirements, accounting standards, why are these treating this as if the climate science is irrelevant and the two aren't connected and that climate crisis was going to be a financial stability risk. So that's the reason number one, why we looked at that and we decided to look at the investment community. But there's two further reasons. The second is a bit of the joke of Robert was asked, why do you rob banks? And he said, well, that's where the money is. <laughs> and if you look at climate change, if you have to understand what's going on with the fossil fuel industry, you have to look at what the investors are doing. And what the investors are doing are going to tell you what's going to happen in the fossil fuel industry, but it's also going to tell you a little bit about the politics. And that takes me to the third element of it, is Jeremy Leggett was our first chair. And Jeremy and I have been talking about the issue of future production of fossil fuels all the way through the 90s. And Jeremy had written the book, The Carbon Wars, which I enjoyed reading. And then he followed up with winning The Carbon Wars. But in The Carbon Wars, he talks about how during the climate conferences, the COPs, industry would turn up 
then the scientists and the NGOs would turn up and then government policymakers would turn up. And what would happen all the time is that business would lobby very aggressively with policymakers and then the policymakers would kind of give in and uh, ignore the science and ignore civil society. And I think Nick and I realized that actually what we can do is let's bring Wall Street to the game. Let's bring the City of London to the game. Let's bring them on the side of the science and let's create a wedge between business and policy. And policymakers, governments make the mistake of thinking that the financial community and the business community are the same thing. Chris, really they're not. They're different people, different ways of working, different incentives, and so on. And that actually investors, when they realize that what these companies would be doing would be destroying the value of the rest of their portfolios, real estate and agricultural assets and insurance assets, that actually the investment community would actually come on and side of a climate agreement. And that's actually what happened, is finance turned up at Paris. And today, even now, the financial community is a very important voice in winning the climate battle. And that wedge, we've exceeded in building a wedge, and it's been a very important wedge. And I think the fossil fuel industry is a little bit more on the back foot than they were in previous years. Oh, no doubt about it. And for some of our newer listeners, I should point out that Jeremy Leggett, talking about his book, Winning the Carbon War, was one of our very first guests. That was way back in episode five. And of course, has been an old friend as well. So here we are, just shy of a decade later, and your message certainly has been validated by the oil and gas majors. And in fact, I think they very much are more on the back foot now. According to Andrew Grant, who is Carbon Tracker's head of oil, gas, and mining, the world's seven largest oil companies had to slash their forecasts for future oil market prices in the first half of this year. And that forced them to write down $87 billion in oil reserves that they can no longer claim as being economic producible in the coming years. But that's not all. Exxon warned that 20% of its oil and gas reserves may still need to be taken off the books if depressed prices continue for the rest of this year. And the reduced oil price forecast has also cast doubt on many expensive oil and gas exploration projects that were sort of slated for development in the coming years and casting doubt, I think, on whether they're ever going to be developed, you know, including things like deep water discoveries off of Brazil and Angola and the Gulf of Mexico as well as some expansions of Canadian oil sands projects. And although the COVID pandemic has definitely reduced forward expectations for oil prices, that worsening outlook for oil was actually well underway before COVID, driven by political support for the energy transition, among other things. So do you feel vindicated or are you worried that the winds will shift back in favor of fossil fuels if their prices should rise again? Yeah, gosh, it's a complex question. And I know from history that only fools try and predict oil prices. <laughs> and there'll be short-term cyclical bounces and changes in supply and demand. And shortages could lead to price spikes. But you're absolutely right. The overall trend of prices suggests that with demand falling away and no signs of supply being constrained, we're going through an era of low prices. And what that does is destroy return on capital because unless you can significantly reduce your cost base, low prices squeeze your margins. And that's why we've seen Exxon's return on capital drop from around 16%, say 10 years ago, to around 4% today. And that rate of return of around 4%, that's not an attractive return given the volatility in prices, given the risk, given political uncertainty, and given the fact that a lot of these projects are complex and difficult to execute. And $50 billion spent on cash again, the 
BP and other corporate ventures before it even produced a barrel of oil, it just gives a reflection of a lot of the risk that's built into the system. So what do you think will happen with prices? BP's own forecasts, which came out in the last sort of week or so, one of the forecasts has demand for oil falling by 20%. Another scenario has it dropping about 50%. Now, a lower demand leads to lower prices. Lower prices destroys return on capital. This situation isn't good. So what are the oil companies doing? So what are they doing is is reverting to demand scenarios, whether from the IEA or from their own work, that suggests that oil prices could come back. And some companies and good companies in Europe that say they're on the energy transition stress test their portfolios at $80 a barrel, whilst others like BP are beginning to stress test at much lower levels at $55 a barrel thereabouts. But even with that, we know to be Paris-aligned Roughly speaking, and, and I was talking to Andrew about this the other day, in Carbon Tracker's view, oil prices are going to have to be somewhere between $30, $35 a barrel break even for production to drop to get production aligned with a Paris, Paris goal of well below two degrees. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, there's no doubt that we're counting on the commitments that the nations have made under the Paris Climate Agreement, as well as those made by the oil companies to get us off the path toward climate doom. But as another yeah. carbon tracker analyst, Mike Coffin, pointed out in a research note in June titled Absolute Impact, Why Oil Majors' Climate Ambitions Fall Short of Paris Limits, when he looked at the nine largest publicly traded oil and gas companies, he found that none of them really have an honest accounting and strategy that will actually guide them to reduce their emissions in line with the Paris goals on an absolute basis. They've all either set incomplete or inadequate targets for reducing their emissions, or they've left themselves some other sort of loophole to avoid actually having to get on a true zero emissions by 2050 path. Even if mm. even the ones that imagine investing in renewables as a way of offsetting their oil and gas emissions don't really measure up to that standard. So, do you really think that we can count on oil and gas companies to be genuine partners in the energy transition? Or should we expect them to keep greenwashing their images until the energy transition just renders their products obsolete? <laughs> you know what? It's, I'm a natural skeptic, so it's kind of all of the above. But there's some people that are more responsible here than others, and I want to go into that. But just look at even BP, and I'm a huge fan of the recent announcements of BP, 40% production cap right down to $17 billion worth of reserves. And they're still forecasting a emissions rise over the next 10 years to 2030. So even with these announcements, they're not committing to cut their emissions over the next 10 years, as I understand it. So who do I think is really responsible? So we have a situation where different oil and gas companies are stress testing their production against different price ranges. And yet you've got like, the accounting firms that sign this off are all roughly the same. And in many respects, you've got accounting and audit firms complicit in the, well, how would you describe, poor disclosures, inadequate disclosures, ineffectual disclosures, and you don't have a common set of standards. And whilst I also like the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Disclosures, it hasn't actually come up with a common set of recommendations yet on what audit and accounting firms should be doing, not just with the oil and gas industry, but with the fossil fuel industry more broadly. And actually, it should, in my view, be coming out with, and so should the International Accounting Standards Boards, should be coming out with recommendations on what Paris-aligned disclosures should look like, including stress-testing your production against much, much lower 
oil prices. And the other thing the oil and gas industry and the accounting firms are not doing is they're not writing down the value of their fixed assets, pipelines, refineries, tankers, and so on. The infrastructure of their industry, they're not writing it down in line with the Paris Agreement. That's and a great point. They're mainly writing down their reserves, the unproduced oil and gas. Yeah. yeah, they're just assuming that it's going to be business as usual. And I was visited by one of the ex-chief auditors of one of the oil majors, one of the top seven, who came to see us. And he said, well, look, you got to understand what we were doing. We were pushing decommissioning of rigs out to to the 2040s and 2050s by telling everyone that demand was going to go up. Because if we brought the decommissioning of these platforms forwards in line with the Paris Agreement into the late 2020s, 2030s, this would have a very dramatic impact on the balance sheet of the companies, which is why, as he explained it, the why they didn't do it. And today, Carbon Tracker, with a few others, Reuters and State Street, we did a, a webinar on early retirement obligations and the cleanup costs of, of oil and gas wells and the cleanup costs of oil and gas that companies are only putting aside cents in the dollar to clean up and decommission the oil wells. Now, if all of those costs were fully put onto the balance sheets of the companies decommissioning cleanup in ways that reflected the goals of the Paris Agreement, these companies would be in a very different position today than the market thinks that they are. And this is going to be a chicken that's going to come home to roost, in my view. And, you know, don't we already, if we have a sharp eye and when we look at the financials, when we look at the annual reports of these companies, don't we already see the distress that they're under already, even well before they're anywhere near meeting the Paris obligations? Like, we have Exxon taking out vast amounts of debt in order to maintain shareholder dividends, which to me, it seems utterly madness. We have this massive explosion of junk bond debt that has fueled the fracking revolution in the US over the past couple of years because they can't operate out of cash flow. At some point, doesn't all of this have to come home to roost? Like At some point, don't we have to have a real reckoning with the actual profitability or lack thereof of this industry? Yeah. And who's going to bring this chicken home to roost? Is it going to be government? I'm not sure. Is it going to be the audit and accounting profession? Well, they ought to be doing their job better. I think one group that could be keeping people's attention on this are the shareholders, the investors, and also financial market regulators. But only, only if the financial market regulators look at the right topics or the right issues. And we have to wait and see whether regulators can catch up with this as fast as they should. And, and actually, what powers do regulators have if companies are not disclosing an adequate type of information to their shareholders? What do you do? Do you delist them? Do you block their 10K reports and their reports and accounts or ask them to be investigated? I mean, there's a lot more thinking that needs to be done here. Ultimately, the intervention of good shareholders is not the same thing as proper policy-driven regulation. But it can be a start. And I think there's growing groups of investors that are asking the right questions. And groups like Bank Saracen in London, we had State Street on the call today out of Boston. I mean, they're beginning to ask these very, very important questions. Yeah. Well, and also the answer to these questions, of course, very much depends on the outlook for oil and gas demand, doesn't it? In my conversation with Bloomberg's Liam Denning back at the beginning of the pandemic lockdown in episode 120, I speculated that the longer it takes for things to get back to the way they were before the pandemic, you know, people just 
happily jumping on flights a couple times a month to go to a conference or whatever, or driving long distances to get to the office and back. The longer it takes to get back to that sort of lifestyle that we were in, the more it'll favor the disruptors in the energy transition. And oh, I'm for sure. And I'm doubtful that the world will ever get back to the 100 million barrels a day level of oil demand that we were at before the pandemic. And I suspect that the longer we continue to muddle through this pandemic without actually putting the virus down for real, the more dubious others will be about future demand. So how do we? Yeah. How do you think asset managers are looking at this question now? Are they going to be applying more stringent asset distress tests to their investment decisions? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And what we know with investors, and that's, I mean, it's understood why when Amazon was worth more than, than Walmart, even though at the time, 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't even selling as much as, as Walmart. And of course, why Tesla is a giant compared to, your Fords and so on, is what investors look for is not market share. They're not saying you've got the biggest market share in an industry, therefore we value the greatest. What, what investors are constantly looking for is growth. Which company is growing the fastest? Which one has a technological edge, a competitive advantage? And so what markets do is they discount the future very well. And that's why, you know, Tesla, for all its market exuberance is the market has valued that company at a huge valuation because what the market doing is looking forward 10, 15 years and trying to say which company will dominate and trying to understand where they should be today. So what COVID has done actually is it's brought forward the peak in demand for oil and gas. And we've seen a series of peaks, a peak in demand for coal, a peak in demand has been reached in our view for oil and gas and others are agreeing, a peak in the sale of the internal combustion engine. And as the market goes through a series of peaks, investors bring that forward. And that's why if you look at, and maybe it's a bit cheeky, but I'll say from the date of the launch of our first report in 2011 to today, if you compare the stock price of US utility companies, of listed coal companies, and the oil and gas sector versus the S&P 500, the whole of the energy sector is massively underperformed. And the reason for that is investors can see that if you want to go from point A to point B, you don't need to bring a fuel from the other side of the world and put it in a petrol station to be able to move from one point to the other. You can actually do this in a perfect competitor, an electric vehicle, and you can probably do it more cheaply too. So with that, I think markets have woken up to that much faster than companies have thought. And the aggressive sell-off that we've seen in the oil and gas sector is a reflection. Collapsing returns, the inability to cut costs as aggressively as they should have done. Let's look at Exxon. They've put 200 and what is it, 230 billion bucks into expanding production in the last few years, 10 years or so. And they've not increased production. They've increased debt by $45 billion dollars but they've not increased production. So even with all of that investment, they've done nothing for their shareholders. And markets are savage. They don't care who you are, they will write you down and they will sell you if they no longer believe in the business model. And that's what we've seen right across the fossil fuel sector in the last few years, is that investors have realized they don't need to be in fossil fuels to maintain investment returns. And there's plenty of other places in the market that they can invest in to get the kinds of returns they're used to seeing. 
Well, I don't disagree with any of that, but I have also been very frustrated to see how slow some investors have been to get on board with that thesis. When I was a freelance energy journalist a decade ago, I remember being just absolutely shocked at the way that so many fund managers seem to just have an unlimited appetite for oil and gas, particularly for the frackers, and were endlessly willing to keep injecting money and extending debt to the producers, even though, again, fracking had never actually managed to grow into a profit profitable business or be able to continue its operations out of their own cash flow. But the sector has underperformed, as you said, for eight of the past nine years. And with oil prices so low throughout this year and credit now finally drying up, a lot of the frackers are also finally going bankrupt, which again, I was expecting <laughs> years ago, right? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, astonishingly now, ExxonMobil has actually been dropped from the Dow Jones Industrial Average, where it had a place since 1928. So what are you hearing from like the big asset managers, like the pension fund managers, the infrastructure fund managers about their view of the sector as a whole? I mean, are they really just saying, you know what, we're done we're not going to invest in this sector anymore. Are they really, truly on board with the stranded assets thesis that you've been talking about for the past decade? Yeah, it's a complex picture because it's different. Investors think of this issue differently in Asia than they do in North America. And Europeans are the ones who've been driving this conversation. The biggest question we've seen really is, can these companies undertake a transition? Can they become like what Orsted has become. It's gone from Danish oil and gas to becoming Orsted and selling off its fossil fuel industry and becoming a renewable energy industry. And some of the investors are holding out that these companies can transition, they can transform, you know, BP making its announcements to invest in the billions into renewables. I mean, it's still a tiny, tiny fraction of their overall capital expenditure, and it's true across the whole. But investors are somewhat inclined to believe that the transition, not all investors, some investors, that the transition is possible by these companies. I don't share their view, to be honest with you. I think that incumbents traditionally get disrupted and the new companies, the new kids on the blocks tend to take all of the growth and the market share and just look at Nokia or the BlackBerry phone a few years ago. I used to love my BlackBerry, but within just a matter of a few years, the iPhone and the Samsung had dominated and taken over. And I, and I suspect that actually... It's difficult for the investors who've seen these companies, the Shells and the Exxons, dominate and also pay the dividend. It's difficult to see that they won't be key companies in the future and that somehow they can transition. But history, unfortunately, is against them. There's no real history of companies making a transition. They've got to do something dramatic. Orsted did something dramatic. It sold off its fossil fuel businesses and became a renewable energy business. We've not seen, not even BP's done that. So... So what should investors do? How should they respond? I don't think the investors have really done the financial modeling that says, okay, once you've accounted for the cleanup liability, the decommissioning costs, the write down of the fixed assets, the loss of growth, the perfect competition from the electric vehicle versus internal combustion engine. Once you've factored that all in and then added in what we call a carbon tracker with our allies, the inevitable policy response, which is that namely policy is going to get tougher, like a carbon price or fuel efficiency standards, that with all of this stacked up against you, you would have thought that the sell side firms, the Wall Street firms would be producing research that says, actually, this is going to be savage and dramatic. And this is the impact on valuations. And here, guys, here's the models. Here's the sell side models that tell us 
yeah. what these companies are really worth. I'm just not seeing it. And actually, the kinds of reports I'm seeing, and I saw one the other day, who was I think it was a guy from JP Morgan, sort of saying, no, the transition is going to be slow. It's going to take a long time. There's still going to be huge amounts of oil demand and in coming decades. So you've still got some holding that view. I'm of the camp that says, no, actually, there's going to be huge disruption and the change is going to happen quickly. And that what investors should be doing today is covering their bets. Now, what do I mean by covering their bets? There's been four or five hedge funds launched recently in the last couple of years. Bob Letterman's Kapos Capital in New York with their energy transition fund, Worm Capital in the US, Height Capital, and our friends at Fossil Free Indices. There's plenty of others. And BNP Paribas have also launched an energy transition hedge fund. They're beginning to short the fossil fuel economy and all the different parts of it. Now, if you're a pension fund and you've got, say, a $5 billion exposure to the carbon economy, even if you put $100 million into a energy transition hedge fund, you haven't really hedged your position. You've still got a net huge exposure to carbon and the transition. And I don't think pension funds have really understood actually the need to transition quickly, which will mean a reduction in exposure to a lot of these companies, which many of them are in a death spiral. And if they're not, they'll be entering a death spiral soon. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. As we discussed with Mark in this interview, the momentum around divestment from fossil fuels has been notably gathering steam this year. In addition to efforts like the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, major banks, funds, and investors have been signaling their unwillingness to continue funding operations that contribute to climate change, as we have periodically reported in the news of previous episodes. Particularly state pension funds and university endowments, which operate under at least the presumption of wanting to live up to the values of their beneficiaries. 
The most recent voice to join the chorus is that of Christine Lagarde, the president of the European Central Bank, who on October 14th questioned whether the bank should continue its custom of purchasing corporate bonds in proportion to the overall market, because more needs to be done about climate change and, quote, it is probably the case that financial markets by themselves are not actually measuring the risk properly and have not priced it in. Lagarde said that the potential changes in the bank's policy would be examined as part of the ECB's strategy review, which is due to be completed by the middle of next year. Ms. Lagarde called on central bankers to ask themselves if they were taking excessive risk by trusting markets to correctly price environmental issues. Meanwhile, back in the USA, New Jersey State Senators Bob Smith and Linda Greenstein have introduced the Fossil Fuel Divestment Bill, which would divest the state pension fund from fossil fuels. Citing the risk of stranded assets, the weak performance of the sector, the imperative to redirect state funds away from companies that contribute to the climate crisis, and the need to start taking action on climate, the bill calls upon the State Investment Council to divest of any holdings in the 200 largest publicly traded fossil fuel companies, as measured by the carbon content of of their reserves, which is kind of an interesting novel sort of filter, by January 1st, 2022, or for coal-related holdings within two years of the bill's signing into law. And I suspect that the New Jersey bill is a harbinger of what we may expect to see in many other states and public funds in the coming years. Item 2. On October 13th, the International Energy Agency, or IEA, released its annual World Energy Outlook Report. For the first time, the agency included a scenario modeling a 1.5 C degree pathway that reaches global net zero emissions by 2050. Interestingly, it also dropped the usual current policies scenario, which represented a baseline based on current policies and which therefore also underestimated the growth of renewables by not factoring... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XC Network.